Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA employs brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call one 800 245 6000 That's one 800 245 6000 Or visit taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. Taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. We are recording on Friday, January 21st, 2022. I'm Jack Fowler. The host, the namesake, is Victor Davis Hanson, and he's the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor's a best-selling author. Many books, his latest is The Dying Citizen. We'll talk more about that, about his website, victorhanson.com. We've got a lot to talk about today. I guess the first issue of, of Victor will be things uh, educational. We'll talk about Jordan Peterson and the ways you think universities in America should be treated. And we'll get to that right after this important message. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Again, I'm Jack Fowler. I am the director of the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. Visit it, centerforcivilsociety.com. Victor, some interesting stuff happening this week, academic-related. One is a piece you've written called Treat the University as it is now, not as it once was. And I'd like to get to that after we talk about the news that broke this week, broken by 
Jordan Peterson, the Canadian academic who announced and wrote a significant piece in, in the National Post, Canada's kind of not lefty paper, that he had quit the University of Toronto, where he's been teaching for years, where he was a tenured professor, and he left because of the ideology of DIE, D-I-E, diversity, inclusion, equity, and for a number of, of reasons among them, that if you were a student studying under Jordan Peterson, there was no way in hell that you were going to get a job if you wanted to become an academic yourself or in let's say, an elite non-academic institution, you had the cooties on you. Victor, I think this is an important and telling thing that happened. Uh, I'm assuming, I don't know this, that, that you may know Jordan Peterson a little bit. Anyway, what thoughts do you have about this move that he took and anything about Jordan Peterson himself? Well, you know, it's, it's typical of the, the current university. So you take a guy like Jordan Peterson and he, he fills in all the boxes. He was Canadian. He was educated at, you know, top universities, McGill. He taught at Harvard. He's now a professor or was of psychology at the flagship university in Toronto. And, uh, and then you look at, was he productive? Did he fulfill the university's requirement for publication? And, you know, he didn't publish a lot of scholarly books, but he's written a couple of them. And he wrote a lot of peer-reviewed articles about, you know, substances. I think he, I think his specialty actually, if I remember right, was alcohol and its effect on psychological impairment and the psychology of interacting with people that have been intoxicated, but it was a legitimate research. What I'm telling you is that by any measure, he was a tenured full professor with graduate responsibilities. And then he, what did he do wrong when this pronoun mania came in and this Orwellian linguistic, he just politely said, I, I'm going to continue to follow the rules of English grammar and syntax and normative references that have been here forever. They're not, they're, they were never challenged before. They're not sexist, racist, the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion gamut stuff. And they went berserk. But that wouldn't have just doomed him, Jack, because a lot of people do that and they're ostracized. But then he did another mortal CERN when he had these 12 rules. And so he, he used his psychological training and his experience with the university. And he said, this is a blueprint of how to be successful. And it was things like, you know, make your bed and respect tradition. And it was an international bestseller. And then he compounded that felony by being widely admired and almost an icon of a counter youth movement. And he was more famous than anybody at the University of Toronto. And that's a mortal sin. And so a lot of this was their typical academic envy of him. But the other was that he was too powerful, too wealthy, too controversial. They just didn't want him there. So they had to cook up reasons to make his life unbearable. And they did. And one of the ways you do that in academia is that when you have a graduate course, and it's happened to me before, nobody shows up because the other faculty tell people not to take that course. Or if you're training graduate students, you're telling somebody 21, we want to sacrifice five years of your life minimum to get a PhD. And then I'm your, I'm your guardian and mentor. I will help you using a network, get a job. They're not going to get a job. So he was in the unenviable position of telling somebody study psychology, but when you graduate, I'm toxic. 
anybody who studies under me in this close-knit field is dead. So he just didn't want to do it. And he was probably in a period of, you know, I mean, he's not a multi-multi-millionaire, but he's well off and he can afford to do it. So he did it. And, you know, this all makes me very sad. I, I know that that sounds kind of corny, but I grew up on a farm where I'm speaking today and everybody loved the university. My grandfather used to have a bookshelf. I still have them. They're called University of California Agricultural Reports. And they were the UC Davis early campus would they would tell you uh, how much water a Thompson seedless vine needed. My grandfather never went to college, but he was very scholarly. And, you know, he they had Latin in high school and he would take them very seriously. And he would say, these are principles of viticulture. And when I would help him, he'd say, Victor, now, you know, this is the uh, red spider mite. And the people up there at the UC campus, they know what they're doing. And then he inculcated his three daughters. I mean, they went to Stanford and they got graduate. Under, and that was just the promise that this was a disinterested, rational place. And it offered, and my father was very different. He played football at the University of Pacific, but it was an upward mobility to get out of impoverished. He was very impoverished and he got out of that. So I grew up with the idea that the university is the enlightenment. And it's great. And they're kind of kooky and oddballs and they don't appreciate people at farm. But nevertheless, it's a promise of America. And we had the great books. Remember those, the University of Chicago series of great books? And we had the the Harvard classics. Yes, Harvard classics. We had the great books. We had the world book and they were all there. And uh, every year, the world book would send us things in the mail, little paste uh, updates, and we would paste them in the entries. And but the point was, middle America was was in love with the idea of continuing education and self-improvement. And and that was what they looked toward the university. And then in the sixties, you know, it became, it expanded because of the population baby boom. And they started adding things into the curriculum that had not been there, mostly in the social sciences, but also to be fair in the vocational. And they became corporate light and they created a professional EDD. And the whole thing was politicized with the Vietnam War and the draft. And ever since, it was on a trajectory where we are to end where we are now. And where we are now is they're dishonest. Their sources of propaganda. Every bad idea, Jack, starts in the university. In the inflationary idea, you print money, modern monetary theory, the idea that you can have good racist ideas to stop or to counteract the bad racism of the past, university. The idea that you're a DA in LA or San Francisco and the law is a construct that favors wealthy people, therefore you should not critical legal theory. I could go on, but they start in the faculty lounge and the life span from this awful theoretical worm into its chrysalis stage to its mainstream society butterfly that infects it is about three years, four years. So they're indoctrinating a whole group of students. The students are $1.7 trillion in debt. The university transfers the moral hazard of being in debt to the federal government. They don't guarantee the student will have any job upon graduation commiserate with the amount of money they owe. And they're anti-enlightenment. They're racist. They're anti-free speech. They're anti 
Christian, you mm-hmm. just name it, and they get away with it. So he's just saying, I don't want it anymore. Yeah. And, I, and it's kind of like the walk away attitude, just walk away. And I think a lot of people, this Zoom thing has been the worst thing in the world for these universities because they had to keep, they were broke, a lot of them, and they had to keep charging for services, of, but the students never got the room and board. They never got the, the full college experience. And then people, they kept issuing degrees and Somebody, you know, I talked to a couple of students at Stanford, and it was like, well, they told us that the Zoom alternate was just as good. And we, you know, we paid the same amount of tuition, and it's not as good, but it doesn't really matter because we didn't learn anything in class anyway. And we all we wanted was the Stanford certificate, the cattle brand. And most country, most universities, except for the Ivy League, can't sell that cattle brand entree into the professional classes. So I think they're really they've really reached a point where a lot of people are going to say, "You can be a very well compensated electrician or right. or engineer. You don't really have to go to that university or go to one that's not corrupt." And so he, I think he was a smart idea. He did. I think anybody who's been in the university feels severely disappointed. Gosh, I, I grew up on a farm. I had to do farm work all year, and I would live in a little town. I thought, man, if I can get away to a university, I'll have a class with somebody who's, whose dad isn't the teacher, or I'll be able to have go to the principal's office, and the guy won't be mad at my parents because they bought a car from him or something. You know what I mean? And it, it was just that small-town pressure and insularity. And then I got to the university, and all the values I've been brought up with were antithetical to these new values that they were espousing, but they weren't values. They were anarchy, drugs in the dorm, just sex on demand by anybody at any time, no bathing, no deodorant, UC Santa Cruz, you know, 1971. And then I got to graduate school and it was like every trait that I had, my parents had raised me that were important, be outspoken for a principle, be courageous, think about being a tragic hero rather than an opportunist. All of that stuff was antithetical to succeeding in academia where people were, you know, kiss asses. They were right. op- operators. They were networkers. They're mediocre. Excel. By, the by, tal- by, everyone, you, by everyone, you mean not only the administration, you mean your fellow faculty. Yeah, a faculty. And then there was all this little petty corruption, you know, that some Guy would take a test and he'd do well, but they didn't like him. So they hypergraded. I mean, that's intrinsic right. in every every discipline, but it was especially hard for academics because they posed as the inheritors of Socrates, right. or they were, you know, they were students of Burke and Locke, or et cetera, et cetera. And they weren't. They were just careerists. Can I? Well, let me. Can I ask? Based yeah. back on. Don't Marquee. ask that. Don't say. No. Can I ask? You say it. Damn it! I'm asking you a question. <laughs> well, don't. Hey, you're starting to treat me like you treat Sammy Wink. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get another letter. <laughs> yeah. Well, Victor. Again, let me just give the name of this yeah. piece for folks who want it. Jordan Peterson. Why I am no longer a tenured professor at the University of Toronto, and that was published on January 19th in the National. Post now, Victor. He talks about his Craven colleagues. So I'm just, you know, I know we've talked at length about your experience as a teacher, and it's been. A while. I know you teach at Hillsdale, but it's been a while since you had a full course load. You were teaching at UCAL, but if you can quantify it, and then we'll go on to the piece you've written about universities yourself. 
How much time towards the end were you spending your psychological capital dedicated to dealing, not dealing with teaching the students, which was your job, but having to deal with the jackasses uh, down the hall that had offices who were well, conspiring well, to bust your chops in some way. I started off as an idealistic populist at Cal State Fresno in 1984. And my idea was to build a classical language program and correlate it with ancient history, art, archaeology, classical literature, and bring in the best people that would come to Cal State Fresno. Bruce Thornton was one of them. We had other really good people. And then offer a classical education to mostly the children of the Oklahoma arrival from Tulare, Bakersfield, or mostly Mexican-American or Southeast Asian. And we had to teach four to five classes because the administration didn't support it at first. And I mean, you know, 40 students times five, 200 students, no TAs, no graders. So I would just, I have pictures of my daughter, you know, just you know, playing checkers with me while I have a stack of blue books about eight feet tall. That was what I did. And I didn't mind that. But then the more I got into the university and I was, you know, finally after being part-time, I was full-time, then tenured, and then, you know, full professor. And then I started to notice that I was on all these faculty committees and it got you know, I was on the honors program. A private donor gave all the money he could and said, I'm going to, I'm going to stop the brain drain from the Valley. You're all going to have a classical education, Western Civ, tough core classes. Victor, you'll be one of the first faculty members. And so I was, and then all of a sudden it was, well, why does he get to be in there when my poetics of gender identity has been neglected? And I'd like to have a course uh, in the gender identity of the West. And then you would listen to him and then he'd say, and you're racist and sexist because I did. And then that stuff just started to overwhelm everybody. So then they would, you'd, the dean would say, or, you know, uh, in one case, you know, I was talking to a colleague in, our, in my office about what, why I was not going to vote for tenure for someone. And if someone walked by and saw that faculty member in my office and claimed that she could hear through two doors that I had already said that she wasn't, she couldn't. And then the, that went out to, he said insensitive things about me. I bet, I bet. So I had to go through the Dean. He said, did you say insensitive things about a non-identified person in your privacy of your own office? No. Could I ask you what I was supposed to say? Did you prejudge your tenure decision? And this is from a Dean who would call me up and say, Hey, Victor, damn it. I need one more vote. I want you to fire that SOB. You know, without any evidence. So I'd say, and I was always, and it just got to be overwhelming finally. Or I'd get a call from the athletic advisor. Hey, Victor, Joe Blow is in your class. Now he's the first person to go to college. And I don't know why he took your class. We have a list of people they're not supposed to take. And you're not, they're not supposed to take your class. But the, the guy screwed up and he didn't drop it in time. And he can't go to class. And he's, He's getting an F, and if you give him an F, it's his third F, and he's disqualified from the football team. So here's what you're going to do. And I'd say no. And then, you know, well, if you say no, we're going to put you in a book. I said, good, that's what I want. I want to be in the, the blacklist. And so it was that way. Finally, it got to be all the time. And then it was politicized. The Iraq war came, and a guy down the hall, you know, he would come in in this huge <laughs> Land Rover, you know, like 
five miles the gallon. It looked like it could go anywhere. It looked like it could drive on the surface of the moon. But the guy never went anywhere but his little suburban two-mile commute. But then on his, you know, then on his wall, it would say, no blood for oil. <laughs> I thought, so I just said to him once, we're fighting that whole damn Iraq war to fill up your gas tank. It's so big. And they had no sense of humor. Or once C-SPAN wanted to do one of those in-depths. So they said they would come to my office and they came and they set up everything. They had like one wire outside the door plugged in because they needed a lot of circuits. So it was plugged into the corridor door where all the offices. And then the next thing I knew, <laughs> the next thing I knew yeah. is two professors across the hallway came in and they told me that the, I was disrupting things and they had officially complained and they wanted C-SPAN out. And then they called security and then C-SPAN started to go out. And as they walked out, the guy went up and goes, I think if you're going to be here, you could really talk to me about my English class about gender and race. <laughs> and oh I'm willing to enter. And that was just constant all the time. So wow. then what I'm getting at is that all those uh, childhood dreams of all these, the Western experience in the university is just shattered. And right. I didn't, I didn't come across this Jack suddenly. It was 21 years at Cal State. It was being a visiting professor at four different institutions. It was being in the history department for a year as a visitor at the Naval Academy, which is the most left-wing history department I ever participated in. It was being a visiting professor at Stanford University for a year in the classics department. It was all the same. The only differences I could see is that Hillsdale College was different. Right. Well, and, you know, Victor, it's interesting because we still have this idea, I think, in 2021 of how the fumes carry on for decades is beyond me, but that the university is something like it was in, I don't know, 1947 or, or 48. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and you've written this terrific piece on victorhanson.com, and it's called Treat the University as it is now not as it once was my one little spiel, which I've made before is like how many conservatives send humongous checks to these colleges because of this mindset of what it was, not what it is. And of course this money will be used to turn their children, grandchildren, great grandchildren to communists. But anyway, Victor, I think it's a point that bears repeating frequently and you've written about it wonderfully. So what is the essence of how should we treat a university as it is now? You should treat it as it deserves to be treated. You just say to the university, you have nothing in, to do with minor exception. I mean, I, I, I didn't go to Hillsdale for the last 17 years for a month with the idea that I was going to prejudge it. My perceptions are being there and having absolute free speech and seeing people who disagreed with the Hillsdale who were liberal, and there were some that were treated with respect and dignity. That's what it was. And then the people were wonderful teachers and they cared about students. I mean, there's a guy there in the history department, Tom Connor, that guy, if you needed him to go to a football rally, if you needed him to be an advisor for uh, student group, if you needed to come drive in at night to chaperone something, if you wanted his grades on time, he did everything by the book. And that's what I had remembered. So when I got there, I thought, wow, these guys are the people that my parents said that that saved their lives in colleges in the 1940s. And so the, 
what we could do, Jack, is there's just some things we could do. We should tell alumni we could have. I really do think that our billionaire class, if they're conservative, could at least say we're going to rate a university on to what degree donor intent is followed. And then that could guide alumni not to give money to these places. Let's like giving heroin to a, an addict. We could also have an exit exam. Just tell people when you graduate, it's not going to be tough, but everybody's going to have to take a little standard SAT-like test. We Until this year, we used to always require them. If you can require them to get in, why not require them to get a BA? And I think you would see the scores probably would go down after having that education. We could say to people, you don't need a, this EDD. Let's eliminate the School of Education. If you want to go teach in high school, you got a choice. You can either get a master's degree or you can get a credential, but you don't have to. You can get a master's and that one year will be so much more valuable. And we would get such, we get a whole different type of person that loved learning to teach. And we should really divorce from the federal government on student loans and just say, you know what, we're not going to subsidize your tuition rate hikes higher than the rate of inflation. And if you want to, if somebody's poor and they need a loan, then you back it. And if you back it, then you might tell Professor X that misses every Friday that he's, that class cost 250 bucks per student that they're paying for. You know, I, I used to buy used cars a lot and I had no money and you should see what I had to read. They would say, Mr. Hansen, do you realize now we have to sell you? that this is the interest rate, this is how much an in interest you're going to pay, these are your assets you put up. Why don't they do that for 18-year-olds? This is what you're going to pay, this is what the interest, this is what the cumulative cost will, is, this is what the breakdown per class will be, these are the various majors and the average salaries you will get if you major in this and you stay in this field, You can and, and this is what each class costs. And, and we'll say, no, no, that we don't, we're, we're utopian Socratic philosophers in the sky. No, you're not. No, you're not. You've got a system that's rigged that puts $1.7 trillion on debt on teenagers. So I lost all that idealism, and I wish I could get it back because it was a wonderful feeling. One last thing, Jack, one that most, I almost would cry sometimes I'd get so sad because Cal State Fresno had about a hundred mile circumference. It was the only major university between Bakersfield and Sacramento and the Nevada border and the coast before UC Merced. And it's better than UC Merced. It had a wonderful library, over a million volumes. But my point is, you would get all these people, you know, the Navy pilot from the Lemoore Naval Air Base that wanted to take a course. You'd get the housewife, you'd get the uh, secretary, you'd get the corporate guy who's retired, and they would all come and they all worship faculty, the idea of education. So they'd all, they all use very fossilized, hello, Dr. Smith, could I make an appointment at your office hours? My name is, you know, Elizabeth Jones. And for many years, I ran a real estate agency and I sold it and I did pretty well and I have some time and I would like to read Shakespeare. So is there a way I could just come in on the returning student? And they did. And they were treated so often, so rudely. Yeah, well, you know, I'll be there. And then they knock on your door and say, Professor X next to you hasn't come for his office hours. And I've been waiting here for an hour. I said, he's never going to come. He's home. Or I would be, they would skip classes. They had no code of professionalism. And I, I'm using that as a stereotype, but it was true. It was true. This is something of, from 20, 25 years ago, right? Yeah. yeah well, it started. Yeah. And then every once in a while, some naive administrator would say, we're going to shape up. 
you know, he called me up and he said, you have a colleague that has never made a syllabus. He won't return it. He likes you. Would you go down the hallway and tell him? So I went down to the student who was in my Latin class. He's a professor, but he was taking Latin from me. We were reading Catullus. And I said, you've never had a syllabus. How can you do that? Well, I just, I just come in and talk, you know, I leave. And then I just give them the grade they want. I said, what if you took your car to a mechanic? And he just said, I just put on any wheel, any carburetor, any fuel injection I want. and Just let them go out. So you have no sense of honor or duty. And so that's what got me about it. Now that has been forced multiplied by the race, class, gender, equity, all that stuff. And it really, everybody should remember, I think you, you in the audience know that when you superimpose a totalitarian systematic ideology and you destroy merit and that can be Jacobinism in the French revolution or Bolshevism in Russia, or it can be, you know, it can be puritanical sort of sex in parts of uh, colonial America, whatever it is, once that's superimposed, you've destroyed all initiative, all merit, all elements of fair and unbiased calibration. And it, it just, it perverts, it pollutes, it destroys. So with this diversity, equity, inclusion, I mean, I don't know if our listeners know it, but we have this idea of equity grading now. Right. And so it means that you can be a racist for marking off a paper that's turned in late. If you choose to take role in community colleges and state colleges usually do, and you're taking role in somebody's late, then you cannot take off for tardiness. Or if you are grading papers and you find great ideas, but they're so poorly formed or expressed, you can't take off for grammar or syntax or composition defects. So it's These like are attacks being, on culture. These yeah, are, it's like yeah. being in the Soviet Union. And everybody yeah. know everybody, I keep saying that, but everybody knows that's what's really scary about the university. It's kind of like Eastern Europe in the last, in the penultimate stages of communism, mm-hmm. when everybody knew you had to mouth these slogans and no one, no one believed them anymore. They believed right. they were just a bunch of apparatus that were on the Black Sea hanging out with the Russian overseers. Even the Russians didn't believe it. And that's what the university is. There's so much cynicism now. Right. And they know that if you are going to get a Rhodes scholarship, if you're at Harvard, they know if you're going to be a national endowment for the humanities or a Guggenheim fellow, they know that if you're going to be the star or something of this, you're going to have to take, it's not going to be a loyalty oath like the McCarthy period, but it's going to be worse. It's going to be a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement. And that's required right. required for applicants at many places. Right. Plus proof that they created a nonprofit to do some other some kind of extraneous BS. But anyway, Victor, this piece was called Treat the University as it is now, not as it once was. Only way listeners can read this is by subscribing to victorhanson.com. We'll plug here five bucks a month, $50 a year. And there are many pieces a week and many in a month of the kind of exclusive content. So it's well, well worth the very minimal price. Victor, one last education thing and, and quick, and we're going to move on to one of your favorite people in American politics. I saw some ads. I haven't seen it, seen the actual show, but 
I've seen some ads on Fox that you sat with Pete Hegseth for this Fox Nation special report about education. Is, is there anything you'd want to say about that? I was really uh, startled that Pete was going to run a special Fox Nation. It was so needed, and yet it would be so rare for somebody to see that need and to act on it about the value of classical education and traditional education and parochial education and charter school education. So he flew out with his team out to the farm here and he stayed a whole day. It was kind of cold. We were outside and he interviewed me. You know, we have airplanes and spray rigs and tractors, kind of noisy, but he was he's a wonderful host and he's a strong advocate for the idea that a young person, very young in their K through 12 experience, if they take English grammar and syntax, they get the elements of history, philosophy, foreign languages, they learn how to diagram sentences, they work on expanding their vocabulary, then that is the, that's almost like your tool chest that gives you the tools then to read Dickens or Shakespeare or Homer or Virgil. And then as you progress through that that curses, then you learn about what does it mean and the content and how to express your ideas. And it was a wonderful two hours that he's, we did for two hours. And I, you know, the way it goes, it'll probably be five or six minutes condensed, but it was an old fashioned defense of liberal arts, classical education, and kind of a lamentation that we have so many people, not just that haven't gone to college or maybe more that have gone to college that, cannot write, can't spell, don't know what a verb is, don't know what Pearl Harbor is, don't know any of that. And, uh, you know, I just lay awake at some nights and I keep racking my brain because I have an emphasis, maybe an overemphasis in the period 500 BC to 1000 AD and say, what was it like in 475 in Rome, say in North Africa, or if you were Augustine, uh, and Hippio Regius, or what was it like in the 15th century, early 15th century, 30 years before the fall of Constantinople, if you lived in Thrace and the Byzantine system was falling apart before your eyes? Or what was it like, you know, if you remember in France or Germany during the Hundred Years' War or something like that? or a 30 years war, except all of that stuff, that period of turmoil and crisis, when your institutions can no longer continue. And you feel, you can just feel it, the crime or inflation, but especially education. It's just, it's just deteriorating before your eyes. And then just when you get the most depressed, you, you'll be surprised somebody will write you or call you, or you'll see it on a campus or you at the store and they'll ask you a question that's just stunning. I was on the campus the other day and somebody came by me and said, can you tell me what the difference between Xenophon's Hellenica and Anabasis is? And I started to tell him, which I thought was a basic question. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, the outlook of him, how did it change? And I said, well, he was a member of the Anabasis and he was an older anti-Athenian, but especially uh, not anti-Theban, pro-Spartan, neutral on his own city of Athens. So that, and we were talking, I thought, where did this guy come from? What planet did he land from? Where is he? Who produced him? And, he grew up on a farm in the Central Valley? No, I don't know. But he was, it was, and then just the other minute, right before I came on, I had a installer 
who works on solar panels. He's never went to college. He's an expert gunsmith. So he came out to look at a problem in their solar system that provides you know electricity for our house and everything. It's been on the blink. And he was explaining this. And then he got into guns and how dangerous it is. And then I couldn't believe it. He gave me a professorial exegesis on ballistics and feet per second and different brands. And I mean, I thought, wow, I should tape this lecture. So you find these nuggets of real wisdom, then they're, they're outside the university a lot. And you really honor that because you feel that they're historically, they're one with all these people that were in fortified little compounds out in North Africa as the vandals were lapping up at their gates. And uh, that's the way I feel. I just don't, I think we lost something. I'll, I'll say a final thing because I'm getting kind of windy, but when I was 10, Jack, in 1963, they had this idea. It was called the Tripartite Master Plan of California Education. It was brilliant. I think the guy's name was Glenn Dumpke that really formalized it in the late 60s. And, and Clark Kerr at UC, it was the idea that everybody could get free education at community schools. They're going to build a community college, a hundred of them, two years. And if you went there, then you could transfer. If you wanted to have a little bit more vocational training, you could go to what became 23 California state universities and they would have great GE programs, but they would be a little bit more applicable to farming or nursing or engineering. And then if you wanted to get a classical liberal education or get a PhD or an MD, then you went to the nine UC campuses. And it was just, it was just, from 1960 to 1975, it worked so wonderfully. And we had, that was the time of California's greater prosperity. We had wonderful highways. We had the California Water Project. We had right. sensible people, and then it just it just blew up. Self inflicted, right? Yeah, it just blew up. It was called elitist, and we have over eleven million people came into the state over thirty years, and it was like this doesn't serve the needs of this community, and this community is marginalized. And no, they're not marginalized. We have a system waiting for them to acculturate them, integrate them, assimilate them, and make them wonderful U.S. citizens. Just let us go to it. No, no, no. You're endangering their cultural traditions. You're imposing an artificial set of values. Uh, who are you to say that, you know, reading Shakespeare is any better than a comic book? So that was what happened. Well, Victor, we're going to combine two subjects, yeah. two of your favorite people in America. One is named Pete Buttigieg <laughs> and the other is named Gavin Newsom. And we'll get to them right after this message. Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and globalization are destroying the idea of America, the Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses all available 
for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. We're back with the Victor Davis Hansen Show. So, Victor, you talked about automobiles already in this podcast. Now let's talk about uh, planes and trains. So on the train front, we, you and I actually talked about this issue of the madness of the Los Angeles trains getting ransacked regularly. This was going on for quite a while. For whatever reason, the issue has percolated up again. And now all of a sudden, Gavin Newsom, there was a Daily Mail piece today. He's down on the tracks helping clean up the mess. But this isn't about litter. This he always about, does that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But he, he, I think he was kind of dressed appropriately for what he was doing. But this isn't about litter. This is about, as you were talking, I think it was on this podcast or a previous podcast, essentially racketeering that's going on. That's a question of law enforcement is occurring in a vacuum of our government prosecuting these thieves who are probably creating not only thievery in Los Angeles, but the material that was supposed to go, the medicine that you were waiting for in Iowa, the important device you were waiting for in Montana that was being shipped there that's, that was stolen. And this was allowed to happen recklessly. So we have a train situation permitted by California leadership, political leadership. That's the train. So on the plane side, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Secretary of Transportation and advocate of chest feeding, has allowed this 5G issue that's percolated in the last week. 5G near airports is going to interfere with plane travel. Well, this was, look, this was not on my radar screen. I didn't know about it, but sure as hell, the Secretary of Transportation should have known about it. And our government was not, not doing anything. So you, a man who is have been tormented by air travel. And I think even prior to there being COVID issues, here we have another way of our government failing responsibility that is going to complicate the lives of American and American businesses and plane travels central to many people's lives. So Victor, Pete Buttigieg asleep at the switch, Gavin Newsom, day late and a dollar short on trains. Any thoughts Yeah, I'm trying to put this all together. And I think there is some common strains to these questions. And one of them is that our elites make these decisions, and they have absolutely no worries about the effects on people that have to live out their consequences of their ideology. So when Gavin Newsom says he's going to 
spend this all this money on illegal alien health care or make a more progressive capitalism or let people out of prison. What he's basically saying is I'm not going to spend very much time on old fashioned stuff like making sure the aqueduct doesn't leak or getting another reservoir or making sure you don't get killed near Tulare on a two lane section of the 99, et cetera. In that context, I don't really care about the train. There's a lot of trash. So what I'm going to do is I think these guys go somewhere like Wilkes Bashford in San Francisco, their clothing, their clothier. And they say, can you get me a, a photo op He-Man outdoor outfit? So we usually get some kind of sleeveless thing and big boots with pockets. And he goes out like he remember the fires. He was always out there picking up things that were discarded or when right. there's homeless, he, he kind of gets into the outfit and he does this. Well, he thought, well, this is, I'm just going to go down there and show that I care. He doesn't care. As I said, those packages are not just trash. There's somebody waiting by the window and saying, you know, I had $32. So I bought this toy for my kid. And where is it? Or somebody else, I took a COVID test. I sent it in. Where is it? And it's out there on the ground. Because if he cared, he would call in that SOB district attorney, Gascon, and he said, listen, you've created a disgust for the law and disrespect and loss of deterrence for legal authority. Your sheriff's department, your police department is in revolt. And one of the symptoms is these brilliant criminals in a cost-of-benefit analysis are stealing these trains blind as they come through Los Angeles to the point where they're not going to come through anymore. And damn it, you're going to do the following or you're going to be in big trouble from the state. He will never do that. So he would get on this outfit and he'd do that. Pete Buttigieg, he, as I understand it, when he was a candidate, he could not make a statement, a speech, provide an answer that everybody in the audience didn't think was self-righteous, sanctimonious, preachy. It was almost like he was a 19th century preacher on the stump. It was always, well, you know, I did this and we have to do this. And you, and it was always, you know, the, the, the unwashed. But and then the other theme to it was always about his gender identity, being gay, or he rode a bike and he wasn't going to contribute to climate change. And then I thought, wow. And then he would refer to what has the guy ever done? He was a failed mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which is basically the mayor of Notre Dame University. That's all he's ever done. And people didn't like him. So now he's transportation. I think he, I think he got a bicycle rack put in somewhere. Somewhere. He disappeared right during the supply chain crisis. So we, you know, I haven't been paid for what, a year and a half, really, because there's no almond income. Uh, and where are the almonds? The almonds are sitting down there in Long Beach with everything else. They can't be shipped or they're out to sea somewhere. And he doesn't care about that. I just talked yeah. to another almond farmer. I said, how did your crop go? And he said, well, it couldn't, it couldn't get out and it started to rot. So the buyers came from India and said, we'll take it off your hands. Because, you know, they have people who are spies. I don't mean spies, but they just call up their their right. purchasing agent, go down there to Long Beach, walk around, talk to some people, show more. That. And he said, I had I unloaded them before they all rotted after a year and a half. So my point is there were existential problems. And he went home and then he bragged about that he and his gay partner had, you know, they were worried about their two children and all that. And I'm thinking, well, what the blank do you think that millions of people who had to lose their jobs 
and go home while their kids were on Zoom alone when they, you know what I mean? Because of Zoom, they couldn't, they couldn't be in school. So they, they had to quit their jobs and watch them. Or what do you think single moms do all the time? But this self-importance is just, and so when he said, you know, I thought about the, the air traffic problem. I thought, you've got a lot of problems, Pete. You've got a shortage of fuels. You've got passengers that I don't know if it's been cooped up because of COVID, but when they get on that plane, they are angry about the mask. You've got Karens in every row that says this guy's 10% of his right nostril was showing and I'm going to get infected. And they start arguing. I've seen it happen. And then you've got so many people returning to the airlines that the connections are so tenuous and people right. are treated. They're just overburdened. And then you've got COVID and you've got mandates. So you've got sick people. You've got people who are afraid of being sick. They're locked up in their house in paranoia. And you've got people that didn't want to get vaxxed, many of whom because they have high antibodies because they acquired COVID. And they don't want to get more antibodies because they're afraid of another Moderna reaction. Okay, so you're, they're short staffed. And I've been on planes where I'm just ready to board 30, 20 minutes, and they'll say, the flight's been canceled. We can't get one of our attendants. She didn't show up or he didn't come. Or I've, I've been, as I said so many times, bored the audience. Sorry, Mr. Hansen, we're landing in Denver. Sorry, we're going to San Francisco. Sorry, we're going to have to turn around because we don't have enough fuel. And with all that chaos, what is Pete Buttigieg doing? He's adding to it. And it wasn't like 5G was invented yesterday, right? It wasn't like there were studies that showed that there might be some disruptions in communications with 5G, and then that would require leadership to make a risk assessment. He doesn't do anything because he's doing everything but that. I remember when he ran for president, you remember it leaked out that he had spent most of his time hiring focus groups. I think it was South Carolina because he was afraid that black Americans had a negative view of openly gay white men and maybe openly gay men. And, and so he ran all these focus groups. Right. And then he found out that they did. And that in these small, and then he had a guy that there were articles that said he either didn't do that or that the, the results, but the point I'm making was that that was his constituency. And rather than address it honestly and say, look, I've got a problem or they've got a problem or we both have a problem. He was secretly trying to do that. And then when he got to that state, apparently he was trying to play down his gayness. Right. in a way that he wouldn't. And so, you know, when we heard about all of his heroic activity in Afghanistan, his heroic education, uh, I don't know how many weird languages he speaks, but we heard everything about any sign, but we never got a sign that he was competent or he'd right. been, in the, been in the real world. And he, and he empathized with people who had to get on an airplane or had to, couldn't take maternity leave or would have been fired if they just told their boss, I'm taking a month off. And Gavin Newsom, there's two types of people I think the listeners, maybe they agree with me, are really turned off by. And one is a sanctimonious, self-righteous snob who's full of himself, Pete Buttigieg. And the other is an entitled, spoiled brat that never grew up and expects that he can get everything. And he's never been around people either. And so he play acts. So that's Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom's never done anything on his own other than was handed to him by a network of family and friends, whether it's right. business, financial, 
political. And right when COVID came, the first question they asked him during the lockdown was, do you see any advantages that politically from the lockdown? He said, yes, we can leverage a, a more progressive form of capitalism. What does a more progressive form of capitalism mean? Does that mean that when I inherit a bunch of millions of dollars, I'll be willing to pay 12% <laughs> because it's no skin off you know, right. my teeth? Right. So anyway, right. I, those two people are sort of iconic or emblematic. This country was known for just the opposite. You know what I mean? It was like the truck driver in New Jersey that got elected. Right, right. Or, or uh, everybody likes that type of stuff. And they like the working class. They like people who are down to earth. They like people who don't prejudge. They like people who don't predicate their behavior on somebody's degree or who their parents or how much money or whether they're celebrity. But those guys just represent the antithesis to that. Artificial, fake, snobby, who you know, what degree you have. And, you know, I'm sounding like my dad, but, you know, my dad was, <laughs> this, my dad was this big Swedish guy, about 6'4", 210. He flew 40 times over Tokyo or Yokohama or Kobe in a B-29, simple fire control. He was on Alonzo Stagg's football team. And I think the guy must have got in 50 fights. He was kicked out of the Marine Corps for fighting, went into the Army Air Corps. And they to punish him, they put him on an experimental B-29 program, which almost killed him with crashes. So anyway, his whole idea was that he had grown up in the sweet, poor Swedish, and it was he wasn't going to take crap off anybody. And he met somebody with pretensions. It was really something. And when I had students that wanted to be friends or they wanted to come home, we lived in about 1,200 foot little farmhouse. And they would come there and they would say something. If he thought they were the least bit pretentious, I just shuddered what he would do. My whole life was shuddering what he would do, but I loved him. And that, that was what was great about yeah. it. I thought, oh, oh, <laughs> there's a professor, a professor, you know, who, uh, stopped by once and I had been up for a job right out of graduate school. And this professor who was one of my former teachers had hired me for the job, but then they pressured him to hire somebody else. So he didn't even write me that he'd fired me before I hired me. <laughs> and so my dad said, well, 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 you got your PhD, didn't you? You just go get a PhD job. And I said, no, you don't. And I said, he said, well, you said they were going to hire you. And I said, yeah, but they didn't. So I forgot all about it. So one day, this same professor that I didn't like very much. So I'm going through the Central Valley. He felt bad. I understood that. So he dropped by and my dad was out working. I said, dad, this guy's, uh, well, who are you? Oh, and he shook his hands. He goes, you're not the guy that fired my son before you hired him, did you? Why in the <laughs> hell did you do that? <laughs> he, he did that all the time. And, and uh, and it, it was like you knew what you were getting. Yeah. My mom would just say, if we were in, if we were trying to park a car, we were in the car, and some guy cut in front of him and took our parking place and flipped the bird. My mom would turn to me and go, "Uh oh, <laughs> the nuclear bomb!" Yeah. And and he would rush out, and she said, "I just hope the poor man is not armed." <laughs> hey, I got I, I have to ask. It was, it was that every every time. Did you ever meet? Amos Alonzo Stagg. My dad was played for him. So you told me, yeah, but I didn't know. If it, no, he, he uh, I think I went to the, uh, my dad graduated with his 
first cousin who was really his brother, Victor Hansen, who I was named after was killed. Right. And they, they played tight and white, split in on University of Pacific's team. I think wow. it was 1941. Okay. Because he had a great career at the University of Chicago and he was old. He was about in his 70s. Right. And he came out to this little private um, school in Stockton, California, and he got this enormous name for this famous football player. And my dad was pretty big and Victor Hansen was even bigger. So they gave him complete scholarships. They were playing at Kingsburg high school and that changed their lives because they got a free education they went to university pacific and my dad had met my mom for a year at a community college before she went to stanford and and then she 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 left stanford to go to university pacific so she could be with my dad and graduate with him and then she went back to stanford and got another ba and graduated and then went to law school there but Everybody worshipped him. My dad worshipped him. And, and, you know, my poor father, and they didn't have helmets or anything and like we did. And I think he got all of his teeth knocked out. He had three years on that varsity. He had knee operations, shoulder operations. He was just neck operations. Well, uh, old man Hanson sounds like he was a a blank kicker. So uh, Yeah, he was. But he was very – I don't want to say that he was highly educated. That was what was so weird. I'll leave everybody with an audience. One day I came home from high school and my mom was almost crying and there was a family tragedy. I thought somebody had died. And I said, mom, what happened? She was a lawyer, a Stanford graduate, and she was going to soon be a judge. So she knew the law very well. And she always protected him. And he was a big administrator finding at this community college. And he said, well, this teacher professor was unduly treated by the president. And they're going to fire this poor man because he found some financial irregularities in the physical, you know, physical education department. He reported it to your father and your father reported to the president and the president. That was before unions and, you know, all the bureaucratic. You could do whatever you wanted in those days. Maybe it was better. Maybe it was worse. But they fired that guy. So my father came in and said, you fired the wrong man. You didn't understand. I, I have all the records. He. He was a whistleblower. He was kind of obnoxious, but he was a whistleblower. And these people are, are absconding and doing things that are unethical. And the guy said, if you don't get out, I'll fire you. This kind of nerdy. So apparently my father grabbed him by his lapel, picked him up, put him all the way against the wall and said, you've got one second to apologize to me and him. And he, you know, I don't know where urinated or something, but he did something that was embarrassing, started crying kind of. And then the next thing I knew, my dad had lost his administrative place and he ended up teaching English 1A with athletes. And my mom said, oh, my God, look what could happen to him. They've robbed him of his entire administrative career. And I said, well, did he assault somebody? She said, He never assaults anybody, but he does make sure that people are held accountable for their speech. And that they wet themselves. And he always said that. Now, I will not, you know, it was one time I was watching um, Lonesome Dove, and I think the Tommy Lee Jones character, Captain Call, said, I will not be talked that way. And that was all my dad did. He'd always say, I will not be talked to that way. And then the explosives were let off. And so I was always kind of. You know, every once in a while, because I was the kind of had thick glasses. I was left-handed. I was a bookworm. My other two kids, yeah. brothers were much more athletic. And anyway, every once in a while, he, when I got older, he said, you go talk to him. Victor, you go talk to him. 
And so I would go up and say, look, my dad doesn't, you know, he doesn't mean that and stuff, but I honor, I mean, I, as I got older, I saw that his code was superior to my own. He was absolutely fearless and he was enormously talented, but he got in all sorts of things. And I thought that the more I became a so-called professor, academic, intellectual, the more I found myself wanting because I was losing some of the things that he had taught me. And he'd always say, you know, well, if you did the job and you turned in your paper and you treated people with respect and dignity and you didn't get full of yourself and this guy is trying to grade you, you go in and look him in the eye and put your hand right on his breastbone and say, I'm not going to be treated that way, mister. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say, dad, this is the world's expert in the Latin subjunctive in juvenile. I mean, the guy, you can't, he doesn't understand right. that. He's like, everybody is human. Everybody has a common. So he, he was a very smart guy. But anyway, that's a. I'm off on a tangent. And I want to. No, it's a great. It's it's a great tangent. At some level, Victor, I do think this just makes me think you would rather be called uh, something you just said. Far, would you rather be called Farmer Hanson than Professor Hanson? I have to admit, I was a good professor. I think I was. I was a good yeah. teacher. I really put my heart in. I was. I had a professional code that I. I always supported my students. I wrote their recommendations on time. I was on class. I never missed one class, in 21 years except one for a spinal tap. And I was always had office out, but I was not a good farmer. Well, I mean, I I, well. I tried, but it was the hardest job I've ever done. I did it. For for over 15 years and five, six years only farming. And when I saw people who were successful, I said, man, that guy is smart. He's yeah. tough. He's got an arithmetic mind, arithmetic mind. He's tough. I don't know how he does it, but I saw guys that had same amount of acreage as I did or my brothers and I did, and they made it. Maybe they were tougher. Maybe they were smarter. I don't know. But anybody who's farming, you know, I would get up in the morning and my brain would go $150 fertilizer, $200 depreciation, $700 per diem insurance. And now let's go to the plus. Oh, plum crop lost, grapes rotting, too much mildew in the South 40. Uh Oh, well, maybe we can make it up with the Santa Rosa plum crop and the Alberta. No, they're gone too. And it was just overwhelming. These other guys I have the highest respect for independent truck drivers, managers of 7-Elevens, independent farmers, anybody disconnected with the state or the corporate world that is an independent entrepreneur, small business person. I don't know how they do it. Everything is against them. The government's against them. The culture's against them. Right. How those guys do it, I don't know. Yeah, my father-in-law was an independent trucker and just a great man. And you're right. You have to buy X amount of gas in every state. And like, oh, oh my gosh. You know, uh, uh, they're they're really, they're some of the brightest people. How we ever got in this country <laughs> of honoring the guy with a BA in sociology is, you know, right. Einstein and deprecating a independent truck driver or a carpenter or electrician or a small business person that was plumbing or a cleaning outfit or people who clean toilets day in and day out. I don't know, but these are the people that you should admire. You really should. Right. I do. And when I see somebody in my university, other schizophrenic existence, and they have that pretense, I have zero respect for them. I really do. Well, to the, to the sociology 
professors who are listening and fans of the show. At this, at this mean, point, it doesn't matter anymore. Jack. I'm, we didn't I'm, mean kind of a, I'm a fatalist at this point. I think the people who are sick and tired of me in the academic world are already legion. Well, Victor, we have spent a lot of time. Quickly, I'll ask our listeners to subscribe to the thing I write every week. It's called Civil Thoughts. Great little newsletter, I think. Uh, you'll find it at civilthoughts.com. Visit the other thing. I'm director of Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, centerforcivilsociety.com, victorhanson.com. Subscribe to our listeners who leave ratings on iTunes. Thank you very much. Those who leave written messages. We read them. And here's uh, one I'd like to read. It's from CA 1955 Ma, and it's titled Endearing. I subscribe to VDH's Blade of Perseus, and I choose to listen to the triad of weekly podcasts on Apple Podcasts. I listen enthralled while I execute my indoor-outdoor responsibilities. It may seem a small thing, but I always leave the podcast satisfied and impressed with the content and with a smile on my face as Dr. Hansen closes with a thank you to the listeners. His thanks seem so sincere and genuine, not perfunctory. I listen to a great man who talks to, not at me, and is humble enough to thank me for listening. Wonderful. That's CA 1955 Ma. Isn't that nice, Victor? Yeah. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. You know, I read the comments and they're so nice and I, I appreciate them, but they're also instructive for me, yeah. <laughs> especially and I'm going to beat a dead horse, especially my inconsiderate treatment of poor Sammy Wink. Yeah, so, well, I'm just well, teasing. Well. I like I, I, I like the idea that I, I shouldn't interrupt Sammy, yeah. but I do read them and I deeply appreciate it. And I think about all the people who are listening and reading and I... Uh, I hope I can offer them some solace in a very troubled time. Well, I think you do. And on that note, my good friend, I wish you and I wish all our listeners the best. We'll be back soon enough with another podcast. We thank all of our listeners for listening to the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe.